Deceptions Podcast. Small Wonders with Laurel Moffat. I have a confession to make. I have a complicated relationship with the Pacific Ocean. It's been this way for the past 25 years. Having lived on what I've thought of as the other side of the Pacific for most of my adult life, it's always been something I've wanted to get across as quickly and as easily as possible. It's occupied a good part of my thinking, sadness, frustration, even dread, and it's been an unwanted emblem of my longing. It was the stretch of sea I wanted to be on the other side of in order to be with a man I fell in love with. It's now the portion of the globe I yearned across to visit family and friends of long standing. My parents used to cross it every year or so, a sister once, some friends over the years. Each visit has become more precious to me in memory than I ever realized at the time of its occurrence. My experience of the Pacific has been the opposite of the meaning of its name, which is from the Latin word pax, meaning peaceful. Not for me, it isn't. Perhaps in order to deal with it, I've reduced the Pacific in my thinking and seen it only as a liquid monolith a vast expanse of a sad sea. By thinking of the Pacific this way, I have effectively dismissed it. So when I read a piece in Time magazine earlier this year about the Earth's oceans and how people often think about them, how they can't really see them even while looking straight at them, it hit home. In his article, Why We Need to Reimagine Our Oceans, Ian Urbina writes, Half the world's population lives within a hundred miles of the sea, but most people conceive of this space as a liquid desert that we occasionally fly over, a canvas of lighter and darker blues. That's what I've been like, seeing the Pacific, but not really seeing it, seeing how big it is, but not much more. Of course, thinking of the Pacific as vast isn't wrong. It's the biggest and deepest ocean on Earth. It's home to the deepest canyon on Earth, the Mariana Trench, which is about six times deeper than the Grand Canyon. Think about that for a second. It's also home to the tallest mountain, Mauna Kea, which at over 10,000 meters high is over a kilometer taller than Everest. The Pacific is the birthplace of countless storms that go by different names, cyclones, typhoons, and hurricanes, depending on the part of the ocean they come from. And it's home to the Ring of Fire, 
also known as the Circum-Pacific Belt, the path along the Pacific where most of the volcanic eruptions and earthquakes on Earth take place. The Pacific spans 60 million square miles over 155 million kilometers. That's far bigger than anything I can comprehend. I can't really get a sense of such a size by just looking at a map. I mean, what does 60 million square miles even mean? Well, one thing it means is that if you were to gather all the land masses on Earth and connect them into one giant one, a modern-day Pangaea, if you will, the Pacific would still be bigger. But seeing the Pacific only in terms of its size or as the representation of stormy chaos is still reductive. It dismisses the ocean rather than engage with it. And I'll be honest, I've never really wanted to engage with the Pacific. I've wanted to erase it, holus bolus. Which is why, if you're in the habit of seeing an ocean like the Pacific only in terms of its expanse, a place of such unfathomable depths that you don't even attempt to fathom them, the phrase, a drop in the ocean, means just what it seems to mean. In the presence of something so immense, what significance can a single drop possibly have? On the face of it, no significance at all. But in looking closer at the Pacific, maybe a thing like a drop holds more significance than such a phrase suggests. The Earth's oceans absorb about a quarter of the Earth's carbon dioxide emissions. That is, its marine life, the creatures and organisms in the oceans, and the ecosystems they form, is what absorbs and sequesters those emissions. However, with sea temperatures and acidity levels rising, organisms that make shells out of calcium carbonate, such as clams and corals, struggle to grow or even survive, which threatens the lives of other creatures, which in turn threatens the lives of still other creatures, and so on. And as the ocean is depleted of life, its ability to absorb carbon dioxide is reduced. At the same time that the ocean's ability to absorb carbon dioxide is waning, trash is accumulating in and on the ocean. There's an enormous collection of rubbish in the Pacific Ocean that is formed into a massive floating island. It even has a name, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and it's now about twice the size of the state of Texas. And if you've ever driven across Texas, you'll know that this is a massive expanse. If my calculations on Google Maps are correct, if the Great Pacific Garbage Patch were on land, it would take almost 24 hours to drive across with no stops. How can you understand an ocean so big 
either its wonders or its ills? And is it even possible to reverse any of those ills? It depends on who you ask, but if you were to ask those who are doing something about the rising temperatures, about the acidity, about the various maladies currently plaguing the Earth's oceans, you may be surprised to find out that the answer is yes, but not in one fell swoop, but rather drop by drop, area by area. To marine ecologists like Enric Sala, author of the book The Nature of Nature, and director of National Geographic's Pristine Seas Project, every drop matters. For each drop has an effect on another drop, and another, and another. According to Sala, places with richer, fuller biodiversity, whether that's old-growth forests or marine areas that have a full complement of life, coral and kelp, microorganisms and fish and mammals, as well as apex predators like sharks, such places are able to more efficiently absorb and store carbon and offset the effect of the use of fossil fuels. As forest fires burn hotter and hurricanes rage more fiercely and sea temperatures rise and the effects of climate change seem to grow more and more extreme, Sala's advocacy sounds a welcome note of hope. Sala and the Pristine Seas team locate areas in the ocean that are the most biodiverse and then advocate for their protection. So far, they have been successful in protecting over 2 million square miles, or 6.5 million square kilometers, in 26 marine protected areas. And what the Pristine Seas team has found is that when an area of ocean is protected, the natural environment within that area begins to thrive. And not just in one or two ways, but in every way, in every element of its being. Places that were dying or dead can return to life, sometimes within just a handful of years. This, in turn, supports and sustains more marine life and invigorates and improves the areas adjacent to the protected area. And as one area is improved, so is another, and another, and another. Drop by drop, mile by mile. This is a way of thinking about an ocean that's pretty much the opposite of the way I've always thought about the Pacific. It's quite redemptive. Maybe I need to apply some of this kind of thinking to my own approach to the sea. The ocean can represent vastness or chaos and any number of big and unpredictable things, 
including my own sadness from time to time. But there's something else an ocean can represent, something favorable, deeply good, and life-giving in its plenitude, something more in keeping with what the Pristine Seas Project has discovered about the ocean. Again and again in the Jewish and Christian scriptures across its many genres, the ocean is used as a symbol of God's power and justice and love and mercy, of his creativity and his comforting presence. The songwriter pens some lyrics to this effect in Psalm 36. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. And in another song, this time Psalm 104, How many are your works, Lord, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. Or in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to friends in Ephesus, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Again and again in songs and letters and visions and history, we find descriptions of God that use the ocean to represent his greatness and his goodness and the depth and richness of his love. This is the God who made all the oceans and is far bigger than them, and whose love is bigger than even the Pacific. This is the God who controls the sea and can calm it with a word, just as Jesus does, and who can change a life cell by cell and renew it, just as Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. This is the God who, when he pours his love into you, as the scriptures say that he does through Jesus, this love, like a marine protected area, will change you completely, both all at once and drop by drop, thought by thought. Maybe just like the ocean, it's not enough to be on one side of it or another. The only place to experience it and witness the life of it is to be in it. The living fullness of the love of God changes people and the way they see things, including the Pacific. It casts everything in a whole new light of redemptive possibility, so much so that even the Pacific is no longer just an obstacle or a terror but a symbol of the depth of the love of God, and even, in time, a physical representation of the links I will go to 
to just see the face of someone I love. In case you were wondering, I married the man I fell in love with from across the Pacific. And at our wedding, we sang, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Maybe we need to reimagine our approach to God, a bit like the team from Pristine Seas, who in their advocacy immerse themselves in the ocean and let the ocean be the ocean. They don't try to force it into something pacific or write it off as unfathomable, but let it be mighty, let it be fierce. They let the apex predators prey, and the coral bloom, and the sponges sponge, and the deep be deep. They let it be unfathomable and terrifying. They let it be immense and alive. And they remind us to not be content with being on one side of it or the other, but to dive into it. Oh, to be a drop in such a living thing. Podcast.